What is up, you fantastic entrepreneurs? Welcome to the first episode of season three of The Resilient Entrepreneur. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Michelle Marcier, and I am your trusty host here, and I am so excited to bring you this season of this podcast. We have some incredible incredible guests. And we are going deep folks. We're not just talking surface business knowledge. We're talking about the hard stuff, the stuff you have to go through to make it as a successful entrepreneur. And we all know failure is part of that and overcoming adversity and all sorts of different things. I've got entrepreneurs who were homeless. I've got entrepreneurs who, you know, lost millions, made millions, all of that kind of stuff. And I can't wait to share it with you. But for right now, I am jumping in with the incredible Brent Freeman. Let's go. Ever found yourself teetering on the edge of throwing in the towel? You know, asking yourself questions like, is this supposed to be this hard? Or is it even possible to succeed at this entrepreneur thing? I completely get it because I built my successful businesses while juggling major health issues for my children and myself, debt piling up to my eyeballs and so much more. Want to know how the hell I succeeded and how you can too? Tune in to find out. Here we go. entrepreneur and welcome to today's show. You are in for a treat. I am here with Brent Freeman, who is the founder and president at Stealth Venture Labs. He has co-founded five e-commerce brands, damn five folks, that's pretty crazy, and is the chairman of the board of the Bay Area chapter of the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship that teaches entrepreneurship to inner city kids. In his free time, he loves to travel to Italy, give back, and spend time with his family and friends. And this is a very cool fact that in 2020, he received the high honor to be knighted by the Italian royal family for his commitment to philanthropy and giving back. Damn, Brent. Welcome to the show, my friend. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. Really excited to be here. Yeah. I mean, let's let's dive right in. So here's sure. the Resilient Entrepreneur. We're kicking yeah. things off a little bit differently. Up until, you know, this season, I've been kind of just asking about people's background, but I want to know more about the adversity stuff. So yeah. <laughs> can you tell us about a time that you faced adversity and maybe what tools that you overcame it? Because there's a lot of people who need that right now. Oh, Michelle, we opening Pandora's box here. Um, if <laughs> you, you know, the, the, the hand in glove um, relationship between entrepreneurship and adversity uh, is, um, you know, it's, it's one and the same. Um, I have thousands of times of adversity that I have, you know, come up against uh, and, and that I could share stories of. But I think the, the one that's most pertinent, that's kind of the biggest one that I have, have really started to put it into a framework to try to help other entrepreneurs or even just people as they've, uh, as they come up against really challenging times of either despair, depression, frustration, um, and kind of uh, unclarity of what to go and where, you know, what to do in their life. Um, I, about five years ago, was uh, going through a really challenging time in my life, personally, professionally, I mean, everything. It was just all out of balance, out of whack. Um, I wa uh, was going through a divorce, um, uh, married somebody who's a, a wonderful person, but wasn't uh, wasn't the, the, the right fit for me. And 
Um, you know, I always told myself I uh, would get married uh, to get married once. And, you know, I had this program and this story in my mind. And when that um, when that shifted and made a hard left, um, it, 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 it really took out the crumbling uh, building blocks of my life because I had all these mental models of building a family together and doing, all, you know, and all these things. And it just like, what, like the knees got taken out from underneath me. And then simultaneously, when I was building my business, um, you know, I've been a, an entrepreneur for about 15 years and um, I have failed my way to success, success in quotes, right? Because I don't ever think that I'm there, um, but uh, it, failure has been this stepping stones for me failing forward. Um, and at that same time, I was going through divorce. Uh, I found myself to be about 40 pounds overweight. Um, I My business was failing at the time. Um, the business model that we had uh, was no longer working. And I actually had all of the quote unquote things that were um, society tells us are success. I had the physical things and the car and the fancy apartment and the view and the accolades and Forbes and blah, blah, blah. But what I didn't have was the innate happiness that emanates from the inside out uh, because all of these uh, programs that I had uh, put into my mind from an early young age all the way through to that point that I was living out uh, were crumbling before me. I had physical things, but they didn't bring the happiness. I had, um, you know, of my own company and quote unquote freedom, but I was a free slave. Yeah. Um, and I was on the brink of, uh, of another business failure because I'd had several prior to that. Um, and I found myself looking out my window one day in San Francisco. I lived in a high-rise apartment thinking, would it be better if I just jump? Would it be better just end it all? And so when you're talking about adversity, when you're having a suicidal thought, um, I mean, adversity, uh, uh, you, you come up against that real quick when you start saying it'd be better to stop uh, living this life than to continue forward. And, you know, I, I saw... Um, in San Francisco, we're, we're filled with uh, uh, with fog and clouds and stuff like that in, in the summer. And um, the fog was coming in and was rolling through and I saw these clouds passing by. And I, I realized that my um, despair and my depression and my suicidal thought were only temporary. And they were very similar to the clouds passing me by, yeah. even though the sun, sun was obfuscated behind it. The sun was always there, always shining, always present. And all I had to do was kind of wait for the weather to pass. And um, it was in that moment that I decided that day to do everything differently. I realized that if I needed things to change I needed to change everything and that I had yeah. been living my life in the matrix in the program and chasing things that every buddy and thing and society told me would bring me happiness but actually didn't stem from my intrinsic uh, uh joy um and so that day um you know with this this suicidal thought just snapped me out of uh my my reality um, and I, I said, fuck it. And I went to the beach and, uh, you know, and I said, nice. I'm going to do something differently. Canceled all my meetings. And I went to the beach, not to just hang and relax, but to, you know, San Francisco beaches are not like Southern California beaches. Like we have in, you know, your mind, it's a little more stormy and yeah. um, a little yeah. colder yeah. and all that. It was very reflective. And I went to this beach called Baker beach. Um, and I sat there and I looked out at the sunset and I realized that sunsets brought me so much joy. Um, and I used to watch them as a kid and growing up and, but somewhere along the lines, I got too busy to invest that few minutes into watching and slowing down. And I got, was caught up in the hustle and the grind culture. And um, I started to cry and I realized that I had been so disconnected from the things that brought me joy, me, truly me joy, not what society said, that um, I had been spending all my time chasing other things and programs and what I told would make me happy and then didn't, that I had disconnected from the root of uh, what actually brought me joy.
And so I sat there and I made what I now call my list of joy. And that list of joy, it's an annual exercise that I do. Um, really, I kind of do it every six months. Um, but it's it's all the things that are rooted in that make me smile from the inside out. And so when you think back to a memory as a child or some experience, you know, you go, wow, that was amazing. That bring that's that's the joy. And as I started to make this list of joy, I realized that I was totally and utterly removed from anything that brought me joy. And it was no wonder I had been so depressed um, because the things that actually brought me joy, I weren't, I wasn't investing in. And so it took me a minute, but after I got about through about five or six items, I, the list came to about 20 or so. And I realized I wasn't doing any one thing on them. And so I made a, a promise to myself that day, five years ago, uh, that I would invest into joy every single day for the rest of my life. And what has happened is that, um, and there's more to this we can get into, but what has happened is that um, as I have been intentionally focusing on investing in my daily joy, yeah. small and big pieces, it has become a compounding effect over time. And that return on joy, when I call that that ROJ, um, that return on joy has created beauty and happiness and uh, hope and optimism and financial success and love success and friend success. And it has been this compounding um, uh, phenomenon that I call the paradox of the universe, which is the, the more that I actually slowed down and reconnected with my joy is the moment my dreams came true. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's not a life uh, where I live every day. I just wake up so joyful. It's no, it's, it is, it is, yeah. it's a practice just like meditation or yoga or anything of practicing, focusing on the things that bring you joy because what you focus on expands. Yeah. And yeah. as I've done that, that list of 20 now, five years later, is about 180 things long and they're not big things. It could be, I live in the mountains, right? It could be fresh fallen snow. Yeah. So when it's a busy, crazy day and work from home and you, and you know, oh my God, so much going on and you have stress, if it's snowing outside, just taking that minute to look out the window and being like, wow, that's beautiful. And that, and yeah. remembering that that brings you joy. And what happens is that these little moments start to grow and expand and take the, uh, make the adversity um, a little less difficult. And as you come up against adversity, you start to realize over time that adversity is typically um, typically comes from something that you invested in early on that wasn't joyful in some way, shape, or form, or ignored. Yeah. And when you get there to that adversity point, we all have it. It's not an overnight thing. It's like oh, it didn't just happen instantaneously. Right. Usually, it was building or a lot of series of events brought into it. And then when you're there, um, you start to realize actually that the adversity is the polarity of life. And in the polarity of life, in the duality, we have night, we have day, we have positive electrons, we have negative electrons, we have adversity, we have joy. And so as we go through adversity, and we more we kind of remove ourselves, like we like I did that day from the, the clouds passing by and separate the adversity from my from my self uh, uh, understanding of who I am, I'm not a depressed person, I'm feeling depressed, depression at this moment. Yeah. Therefore, I can separate myself from the two. And as I do that, I start to realize that adversity or hardships become seedlings for future joy. Because those are the learning lessons. Those are the moments The like when you physically work out, you break down your muscles and feel the elastic acid and the soreness, and that makes you stronger. That's the physical process. But we don't think about that emotionally because we're in it. It freaking sucks. And the <laughs> negativity bias and the, the pain avoidance side of our brain, of our reptilian brain, wants us to avoid it at all costs. Yeah. But these adversity moments actually become these seedlings that grow their acorns into the oak tree of the joy of life. 
um, if you go inward and you learn the lessons and you evolve what I call the upward spiral, you evolve out of them. Um, so you try not to make those same mistakes twice. So yes, I have been through many different uh, smaller and large examples of adversity, but that moment standing on the top of my building, you know, not on the physical top, but looking out my window, uh, wondering if I should continue on was a very dark moment, a dark, you know, dark Tuesday morning of the soul, so to speak. And um, the what I have built of, of reconnecting uh, with the things that brought me joy and then the daily investments into that. And then I have a whole framework that I'm, I've kind of built on top of it over time so that has helped a lot of people as well as myself. And it's kind of like fundamentals of a, a footwork of, of any sport. It's like right. when you're, you, you know, you need to get like playing basketball or whatever, football base, doesn't matter. Your fundamentals, your footwork, your hand, you know, what happens there, you go back to that when you you are um, in need of kind of getting back to center. Um, and these, these fundamentals um, help you kind of uh, challenge, push you through the adversity and gain perspective um, to get back into more of a homeostasis. Um, and, and so a long-winded answer to your, your question. So yes, I have experienced <laughs> it. Um, and uh, I, you know, and I, I still do, right? I still do come up against adversity and hard times and challenges. And what I find is that actually removing myself and getting more of that white space, I get more clarity, I get out of the high beta brain waves analysis paralysis and get into more of a space where I can actually look at a problem with more uh, perspective. And, um, you know, Einstein said, you can't solve a problem uh, with the same level of consciousness that created it. Right. right? Right, exactly. I mean, I, I absolutely adore what you just said around kind of those small things and the, the list of joy that you're making. I, I have a magazine that I read called Bella Grace, which if anyone's out there, it's a beautiful magazine, wonderful illustrations, and they come out every year with a book of lists. And the thing is, is a lot of the lists in there are the simple things that you're saying. And I think people forget, like you said, freshly fallen snow, the things in everyday life, crisp sheets when you or clean sheets when you lay down yes. on them, you know, the yeah you know, if I go to the beach, the stillness of the water, if I'm just looking at it, like, or just these things that come into your everyday life, because I think sometimes, especially when I, when I instruct clients or I talk to people about start gratitude lists, start joy lists, they think they have to be these gigantic big things. And I think what you're saying is the secret is it's actually the things that are in your day-to-day -day life that keep you balanced. So when adversity hits, you know what, it's not going to take away. It's not going to take away the freshly fallen snow. It's not going to take away those things. And it also kind of, for me, when I hear you say that, it makes me, it reminds me that there's always going to be hope, right? Yes. Because, because those small things don't go away regardless of the adversity. And then also thank you for saying to separate, you know, the, the emotion from the person. I actually hear that a lot in terms of kids, little kids, cause I have them over here. It's, it's not to say like, I'm bad or I'm sad. It's, you know, I'm experiencing sadness or I feel sadness, right? Because we identify so strongly with those emotions and props to you friend for having that moment in the building, because I yeah. know damn well, people are listening and there are probably plenty yep. who have had that oh, yeah. thought myself included on those, on those really rough moments where you just want to say, fuck it, I'm out, you know? Yeah. And, and, and that's as the more that I've shared my story openly, obviously when you first share a story like that, you, there's, there's a vulnerability bit of like, gosh, I share this and all, you know? And, um, and then for me, it's it, like you said, it's fuck it. Like my, I'm put here on this earth to yeah. create impact in the world. And by sharing my story, the more I did research, you know, 20% of the United States, 20% um, suffers from clinical depression, which is, you know, clinical depression. When you get to entrepreneurs, um, it goes up to about 30%, a little bit more than 30%. 
But when you start to really drill into entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, we have a depressed thought, a very serious depressed thought over 60% of us at least once a week, right? Because we're living this manic high highs, low lows life of like sometimes in the same hour, let alone the same day, right? Where you can have the best things ever happen to you and then the worst thing, you know, oh crap, what do I do? And so I used to be a very anxiously focused operator uh, and it stems from being anxiously attached as a, you know, as a, in my, in my attachment style. And, and what I realized is that, you know, you can't, you can't separate that from your work. It's just who you are. And so as you bring that into adversity, you know, I wanted to solve problems right now, right here and get them done. And I ended up making like grasping at sand and making them worse and making them bigger. Yes. And then I'd focus on those problems and they would ruminate. I'd go downward spiral, downward spiral, and it would take me up. And I would have, you know, there were several times I thought I was having heart attacks in the age of 30, you know? And so went and got all of the tests run and they're like, no, dude, you're fine. You're just really stressed, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, so the more that I've learned about neuroscience and our body the more and meditation, right? And I'm not like a sit cross cross-legged say um kind of meditator right? right but now my meditation practice ranges anywhere from 30 minutes a day to 90 minutes and I used to not be able to even sit down and have five minutes of right. it because right. I have ADD and dyslexia and anxiety and all that and all those things and the more that I've kind of gone into into my meditation practice um it, and really it was for me kind of connecting two worlds between neuroscience east meets west to understand what's happening in my brain um, when you get calm and still um, and when you separate yourself from your what you're feeling you are not that emotion you are not that experience um, and how to kind of get into that into that state Um, and it's it's really fascinating so you know you know we have different brain waves of when we sleep delta all the way up to beta which is consciousness Um, and as you're in theta which is kind of your hypnotic state uh, and then alpha which is your creative state when you're kind of in flow and then beta is your high consciousness and in beta there's three different um kind of low medium and high low is like hey we're talking we're engaged medium's like oh i'm going to be tested on this i should pay attention right and then high beta is fight flight freeze yeah and we're in high beta um everyone feels it differently but you usually feel it somewhere in your body um it's usually a rush of adrenaline um and it's cortisol spiking through and through and that's we did that to be able to run from predators, you know, out on the savannah and have us evolve and survive. But when it's uh, an email from a colleague or a client, or when it's a Slack notification, I mean, we have so many things yeah. pinging at us at all different times that we end up living our lives in this high stress. Um, and so kind of bringing it back to your adversity question, there's two different types of stress. There's you stress, EU, you stress, and then there's distress right? And, and when you have distress, you can have acute distress, um, which, oh, I'm, you know, running from this predator, I'm safe, let me, let me run away, or big problem at work, okay, we saw it, back to normal, right? And then there's chronic stress. Chronic stress um, over time leads to disease, um, disease. It leads to problems in our bodies, cortisol running through, leads to all the challenges um, that we don't realize um, have a massive effect on our short and long-term health. And so as you're, as you're dealing with adversity, I think the practice is there's a lot of tools out there to help us uh, really help us process adversity. But the first thing that I found to be the most important is to, to is to get some space. Yes. Um, and the, the anxiety in me wants to solve the problem right away. Right. Mm-hmm. Some people want to avoid it. Some people want to solve it. Some people are like, okay, I can give it space and time, but the best thing is give it a little space, give it a space to breathe. 
Um, sometimes that's you, that's only a, a couple minutes. Um, I'm going to write the email and I tap on my keyboard, all caps, blah, 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 save as draft, take the new person away and then come back and reread it when I come down. Or sometimes it's like, okay, is this, do I need to solve it today or can I give it a night? And pulling yourself away to be able to come out of that, uh, that high beta that could be going for a walk, that could be cuddling with a pet or your kids, or it could just be going into, you know, watching something um, on television to kind of remove you from it. It's why a lot of ideas are sparked in the shower, right? Or when you're going for a walk. All the time. Not like, yep. Yep. Right. You're not, you're not in high beta. Agreed. Like you just, you're just like hanging out. Right. And that's, and if you don't allow that space to come in and you don't consciously make it, the things won't come. I see that all the time with clients where they're like, why isn't it coming? I'm like, because you can't force it. You can't just be like, Hey, creativity, let me schedule you to come in between 10 and 11 today. Like that's not how that works. But what you can do, you're absolutely right. I thousand percent agree with that, but you can do, and I actually do this in my calendar. I schedule white space. Yes, exactly. I used to to schedule, I used to have back to back to back to back to back. Mm -hmm. Now I schedule white space and the white space for me, you have a biological prime time. And when you think most creatively, I try to put it in my biological prime time. For me, it's like 9 a.m. to about 1 p.m., right? And, and I try to put it in there. And if not, it's in the afternoons, right? And I, and I put it in there. And it's usually a two-hour period. And the initial side of things made me think, oh, I don't have time for this. I need to go solve. I need to do, do, do. And that's the entrepreneur. And I said, like, we got to solve it. But actually, white space is creating it is thinking it's how we come up with revelations of how to skate to the puck it's how we remove ourselves from having to solve challenges that are in adversity it's it's what i did that day at the, at the beach I, I just removed myself exactly. um, and i got white space so so there is a i think there's something really you know really important piece here going back to that adversity is there is a there's a toxicity in the hustle and grind culture around I was just thinking that exact same thing so thank you good segue <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking right? the same concept. Yeah. And so, you know, when you look at um, the, you know, the Gary V's of the world and some of these folks out there that say you need to rise and grind and hustle and outwork, it's not that he's wrong in the sense that you need to work hard. Um, or I'm using him as a proxy for that, you know, kind of like that, that, that culture. Um, it is, it is that there is a better way to do it, to work smarter. Um, and, um, in the end, if you hustle, grind, make the money, get there and you get to the end and you have all the things, but none of the stuff that actually brings you joy, what does it fucking matter? So there is no destination. We aren't promised a destination. It is all about the journey. The journey is the destination. And so if we can find joy along the way, when we get quote unquote there, it'll be even more joyful because the things and people um, and experiences that are around us will be bringing us joy all along the way. And if we don't get there, we enjoyed the journey. There's no downside. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. recentering. And I think there's something to be said about almost an addiction to that high beta wave too, right? Like your body gets, your body, I've seen a lot of people and myself included actually, because I've, I've went through very similar things that you described with like, I'm having a heart attack. Oh wait, it's just my entire nervous system is on crack basically. So, but I think there is, yes, absolutely that hustle grind mentality, but then there is something to be said about when you're so used to being in a high beta that the opposite feels more threatening than the high beta does, right? Can you speak a little bit to that? I think you probably understand what I'm saying. Yeah, 
A hundred percent. So, so your body becomes addicted to being stressed. And what that means is it's so used to having that cortisol reacting. And so what happens is that as we, as we go back to the brainwave side of things, um, as we develop until about the age of 12, 13 in that range, we actually um, start to kind of work our way up on the brainwave cycle. So when we're like zero to two, three in that range, we're in Delta, we're basically in sleeping state. That's why we don't remember a lot when we're that young, we don't have those other brainwaves. Our brain hasn't grown. And then we kind of move into theta and then we move into alpha. And that's why kids, you know, young, kids are always playing and they're so present in that moment in their teacups or in their imaginary friend you know because they're not thinking in quote-unquote high consciousness they're just in the imaginary world right and then we get to about 10 11 12 but that's when stress kicks in that's when the our physical brain starts to develop and expand and have these these brain waves um, and then over time until about the age of our mid-30s um, what we the learned behavior and how we act and how we respond to things um, becomes hardwired yeah. And right around your mid-30s, around the age of 35, your habits, your behaviors kind of become who you are and become your personality and become how you react and respond and all your mirror neurons, meaning how you've seen in the world and your parents and your family, they start to become hardwired. And hardwired in the sense that um, they are the default reactions, the default responses, the default mechanisms. And that also then becomes the how we learn how to deal with stress. And your body is like, okay, this stimulus in, I'm, this is how we deal with it. It doesn't mean it's good for you. This is how we deal with it. Exactly. And it becomes yeah. used to just reacting and responding in a way because that's the pathway. And so as we get into our mid thirties, um, we actually have to be very, very, very conscious of then rewiring it and rewiring. It takes a couple different things. Rewiring. It takes practice. It takes um, intention. Um, it takes understanding the, uh, like the neurological networks on it, on it. Psychedelic therapy is doing a brilliant yes, amount of are. work yes, in this. Are. Yep. Uh, I mean, on the psilocybin front and on the MDMA therapy front to be able to rewire pathways um, you know, in that, in that realm, in that realm, um, there's, you know, talk therapy. I mean, there's all sorts of different modalities that you can use right. meditation, right. All that kind of stuff, but your body becomes physically addicted to how you are learned and reacting, not because it's good for you, but because that is what has, that has been the learned habitual behavior. Right. Exactly. And so we actually have to break that addiction and retrain the organism that is our body. Remember, we separated our mind from our body. We're not our body, right? It's feeling something. We have to retrain it like a like an animal in some fashion, right? To be able to say, oh, yep, typically you'd get really fucking pissed at this thing happen and you would yeah. react, right? And Victor yeah. Frankl, uh, you know, Victor Frankl, you know, Man's Search for Meaning, one of the best books of all time. If your listeners haven't read it, it is the uh, one of the most life-changing books you can ever read. Um, he was uh, a, a Jewish psychologist uh, that went through Auschwitz in World War II, lost all his family and friends and all of his dignity and everything, um, survived, and then wrote this wonderful book of uh, recounting it. Very um, emotional read, but beautiful. And in essence, all he says in that book um, is, is what he built his rest of his life on is that uh, you can be stripped of everything in your life, um, possessions and, and uh, dignity and all this, but the only thing you cannot be stripped of that you have sovereignty over is the space between stimulus and response. Yes. And that space, that gap between the stimulus and response um, becomes something that we have to relearn and teach as we become adults and we awake we awaken ourselves to, oh crap, like that's not my higher self. That's a fragment. That's fear. That's anger. That's, you know, that's not how I want to show up in the world, but I'm so used to reacting that way that I need to now consciously retrain and how to retrain that part of that is getting back to what brings you joy. Part of that is trying new things, creating white space, trying to go doing some meditation, downloading headspace or calm, right? Getting on YouTube. There's a ton of free meditations, 
right? Um, all the way through to psychedelic therapy that is having um, insane yeah. positive results. Oh my goodness, the documentary that just came out too on Netflix. I can't wait to watch on all of that. I love it. How so to much. Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. If you want to really read a mind expanding book, um, no pun intended, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. I think cool. they just did a Netflix series on it yes. Um, yes. as well. Um, talking about why these substances have been, um, you know, uh, uh, shunned in our society and then what the actual science is behind them when used in the right way. I'm not talking about party, you know, I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking no, about in a clinical setting of some sort with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I just, I'm, I am loving everything that you're saying and I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, because I think like to your point, you know, you do, there is that, I love that you brought it back to that space between right before you react, right? Because I say that all the time is that that is the only thing you can control and you can be in the shittiest of circumstances. And I, and I reference Holocaust survivors too, because there's, I don't know, that's pretty much like a very shitty circumstance, right? Like doesn't get more more shitty than that. Right. So, I mean, I just, I absolutely adore what you're saying. And I do want to switch lanes a little bit because I want to talk, I want to talk uh, philanthropeneurship with you um, because when I love that word, good job on that. Um, I want to talk about what you view and how you view it's possible to actually make money and give back because I hear it a lot and I, and people are very skeptical of it. So I'd love to hear it from you on that. So um, it actually really is. It's good. It's a good segue from what we were just talking about. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that um, there is no destination and right. that the journey is the destination. And so if you take a look at the traditional philanthropic models, uh, the Rockefellers and, you know, and all of those out there that you make billions of dollars, millions of dollars, and then you give back. You have so much you then give back and you, you know, you have this, that's how philanthropy was born. And also as a part of tax strategy and tax reduction, there's all exactly. like, 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 let's not be, let's not be silly about no, this. But, you know, rich dad, poor dad type stuff. If you haven't read that book. Totally, right. So totally. Yeah. Right. So how to optimize your tax practice. And so, so when you take a look at the traditional philanthropic model, right. Um, I, uh, I looked at that and said, man, there's gotta be a better way to do this. Um, from the beginning, if there is no destination, what happens if I never make the money? What happens if I never get there? What happens if I die? I don't want to wait till that one day. I want yeah, that one day, two day. Nice. And so, um, and so, I started looking early on. One of my first businesses failed. I was in the commodities world, import export randomly, um, and uh, I saw all the people making the physical money and had all the amazing things, but they didn't have the one thing that I was seeking, which was um, to make an impact in the world. And so, when that business failed, I started an online marketplace for socially conscious brands. And I started looking around at the world, seeing these amazing social entrepreneurs um, using their businesses to embed uh, cause into their cogs, right? So, um, and I said, that's exactly what I want to do. And so I, I created like an Etsy style marketplace. That business, again, also failed. Talk about adversity and growth and stepping stones, but we learned <laughs> a lot. And I dedicated my life, this is about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, to saying, how do I embed social good into the DNA of my business, starting from how I treat and set up my company and employees all the way through to how we give back in, in, in the world. And for me, it's just a no-brainer. It's not a nice to have, it's a must-have. Um, because I want to feel good about the things that I do and the people I work with. And I want to um I want to make a difference as I go because I'm not promised the end. And you know, I think for me that that started my mom, uh, my birth mom died when I was six and a half from cancer. And so from an early age, I learned 
this the hard way. A lot of people haven't seen or dealt with that kind of stuff uh, from an early age. And so they, they just think, oh, I'm going to one day, one day, one day. Get, if you don't do it now, you'll never do it when you get there. And so, um, you know, I'm on a I'm on a mission in my kind of like macro career to to really prove to the world that you can you can make an impact in the world um, and you can make a difference in the world as you go. Um, and in fact, I think the only way we save, uh, quote unquote, the world, right, and our environment and all the things that are going on around us is by harnessing the most powerful economic engine, which is business. It's not, you know, when you think about you know, teach a person to fish uh, versus give them a fish, when you look at the traditional nonprofit model, it's all about give them fish, give them fish, give them fish. And I'm on the board, you know, I'm chairman of a yeah. board of a nonprofit. And, yeah. and, yeah. and you have, and, and that's fine because that, that works with some donor relations. And, and you, exactly. once you get to a certain yeah. size, you yeah. can make that happen. But what if from the beginning, every single company in the planet donated 1% of their profits um, into something that gave back or even better yet, use their business to make the environment, to take care of their team, to take, to give them great healthcare, right? I've recently been uh, watching on the sidelines as a, a family member, uh, distant family members navigating the HMO world. Mm. Um, and it's just so Hell. devastating yeah. where yeah. my company from the beginning, we have uh, at Stealth Venture Labs provided 100% of health vision and, and dental for our, uh, our employees and their dependents, the best PPO money can buy because when you are in distress with your health, the last thing you need to be working about is a committee who makes a decision, who makes a decision and then comes down and it's wrong and then you appeal. And, and what healthcare should I you know, go after? Or can I afford this? Can I not? You should never have to choose between your health and, and money. And so when it starts about social good, for me, it's about embedding it into how you operate as a business all the way out to could be teaching, it could be building wells on the ground in Africa, whatever, whatever you're passionate about. And so the term philanthropy for me is really just a mindset. I started a, a, an organization when I was in, in college called the Philanthropy Society. Um, and it was just all about um, how do we use business to create impact? How do we harness these, these engines and embed cause into our cogs so that as we scale our profitability, so does our impact. And that's not a bad thing. No, it's not. And, you know, to, I'm just going to be blunt. It's not that fucking hard, people. Like, it is and it isn't, right? I, I, I understand because the operational person in me is the scalability <laughs> of it all and all that, right? right. Like, that's the business the yeah. business head. And I can hear people with established business or entre or enterprise level businesses yeah. saying, you know, well, we can't go backwards like that. And the amount of resources it takes, but if you are an entrepreneur and you are starting like to your point, you just factor it into the business plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I would even challenge that. Like, so it starts with a what and a why. Yes. Agreed. And if those yeah. are compelling and strong enough, the how becomes uh, just yeah. a semantics of blocking and tackling yes we, uh, a good example of that is um uh, about a year and a half two years ago we started realizing we had a lot of people kind of in the family building range and we're like oh we really need to come up with a, um, a parental leave policy and i looked yeah. at it and i said okay not um not like how do we do this and that and the other or what are the other people doing i said what is the why? right thing to do for yes. parents that are new and why does that matter? And I said, the right thing is to give the maximum amount of free, focused energy and time as they bring a human life into this world so they can be present and create good, other good humans, right? And why does that matter? Because um, when I have children, um, that's what I'm going to want. And that's what I believe is going to create a long tail ripple effect in this world. And you shouldn't have to choose again between your job and your children who are, you know, 
four months old. And yeah. so we said, okay, what and why is we're going to create an industry leading um, uh, parental leave plan. Um, and why? Because it matters for parents to be present at their children's earliest days with their spouses and with their partners and whatever it may be. And so that became the compelling call to action. And then the how was like, well, shit, how do we pay for this? How do we figure this out? Right, We're not right, venture backed, right. right? We are we are a service business and it's self-funded. And, you know, we already pay a ton of money every month on, on you know, healthcare. How, but how do we make this work? And so we said, well, the what and why is so compelling enough for us to do this. Let's have a policy that meets and beats Google and what they do. Um, so we provide four months of 100% paid parental yeah. leave. It doesn't matter who you are, who, you know, what your right, gender, right. your orientation is, your sexuality, it doesn't matter. 100% paid parental leave for four months with an optional fifth month um, in there if you want it as well, uh, as well um, so that parents can be present. And then we said, well, how the hell do we make this work? financially yeah. that's yeah. where that's where we went to crunching the numbers to say okay is there an organization where we can buy an insurance premium that can help us make sure that we pay on this and yeah we pay more every month but when this comes in we can make it work financially and so it requires intention and a passion and a strong what and why from leadership there is always a how there's always a how yeah um, and, and so yeah. in with those enterprise clients it, it it sometimes can be scary because we think that um, it's going to take away from profitability yes, exactly. yep. uh, or it's going to take away from quarterly earnings or it's going to take away from those things. But that's such a short term myopic view to a long term race yes. that is business. And so, and so, yes, when you're dealing with bigger bureaucracies and all that, it may be you need to eat the elephant one bite at a time in some ways. Um, but when you're but even at the early stage entrepreneur, it just requires an unwavering attempt, uh, an intention yes. to create that and um, realize that you're going to be on an island. You're going to look around. There's not going to be a lot of people thinking like you are. There's so many other pathways um, that say, no, this is more financially makes more sense. And you're just going to have to stay the course. And so one of the things we're working on as we speak is benchmarking um, this data and, and releasing some white papers in the nice. upcoming years, a longitudinal study of what these practices have done to our top and bottom line, our retention, our client satisfaction, right? All of these items to say, look, here's the case. It is good for business yes. Um, yes. to do these things. And short term, you might say, oh, wow, we can't afford another N amount a month in insurance premiums. That doesn't make any sense. But what you when you have a, a person going on parental leave, what you can't afford is that person, um, you know, leaving or feeling pissed off or, or you know, socially being, taking them away from their, you know, so anyways, I'm, I'm on my, I'm on my soapbox. No, it's you, okay. I like it. Yeah. I, I like where your soapbox is friend, because I mean, my, my business model is keeping the personal in business, right? So, you know, and, and constantly looking at that things, but to your point, it's about playing the long game. And I think, you know, people get very, I mean, there's a lot of pressure, especially in the large companies, you know, you have to hit your quarterly goals, you have to hit the this, the that. Um, but if, if you have a leader who, to your point is staying the course and who understands that the intent is to play that long game, in employee retention and all the, all the amazing things that you just listed off, you know, then it, it makes it easier. And it also gives everyone around you something to buy into when you have that why, because the how yeah. people aren't necessarily buying into, it's not as sexy no, as it's like, if you start with good. the how, if you start with the how, you can no. have all the stairs saying, oh, yes. listen, you can't, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do yeah. it. So what I always ask people when they get into that mode is uh, tell me how I can do it. So I hear you. You've given me all the reasons why. And now I can't. Now let's just dream. Tell me how. Yeah. What would have to happen? Oh, well, we would have to find a, an insurance company that covers this. And there's none out there. Oh, okay. Have we searched? Have we really searched? Exactly. Oh, it turns out, turns out there is. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. The yeah. rental leave company that we use for to that we pay a premium into for insurance that covers our policy is called Parento. 
right? Use it. I highly encourage everybody who wants to provide industry leading parental leave policies that can make some financial sense for everybody. Parento is the insurance firm that we use to help us make this a smart business decision while the right social decision. So, so there is, there is a, if the what and the why are compelling enough, there's always a how. Right. Right. And when all else fails, folks, we're entrepreneurs. If there's a hole in the market, fill the hole, folks. (laughs) Right. I, I, I was I was saying when we were searching for this, and if we didn't find that in the future, I was like, Make we're going to create Yeah. Because like, somebody create. needs it, right? If you, if like, everyone is sitting around a table saying, yeah. we need this, totally. chances are you're not alone in that, folks, yeah, exactly. right? So yeah. do the entrepreneurial thing when all else fails, right? I think, you know, one looping thought I had here before we kind of move on to the yeah. next question is um, leadership is not about being liked. Thank you. I, yes. <laughs> I was, um, I, I fell um, beheld into this during kind of early years of my career. Uh, as a leader, oftentimes you want to, you want to be liked. Yeah. Leadership is about leading the way through the night in dark times when people don't see that the sun is going to rise on the other side and you can give them the path and um, uh, you can have the courage to go through the, go through the dark and run full speed into the dark. Um, and, and sometimes that means pushing the envelopes for what is right. Um, and, and some, you know, when you go on the extreme end of leadership, you can get into martyrdom, right. Of, right, uh, right, right. And that side of things. And we're not talking about becoming a martyr and dying on the, you know, on the, on the cross, so to speak, what we're talking about, um, is, is leading for what's right for the next generation of businesses from yes. the inside out, whether you're an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, a manager, a director, an executive, um, pushing the envelope in the ways that may not always make you liked, but you know, um, is the, is the right decision. Right. And I think that's the true test of leadership. Yes. Yes. I'm a big fan of, I'm certified in daring leadership with Brene Brown and all, all different things like that. And it's, and it, it's a completely different way generationally to be looking at leadership um, rather than kind of that old school model of like, I lead you follow, you know, and all of those um, it's much more in line with maybe servant, servant leadership or however you want to call it, but just it's, it's human leader. Ship. <laughs> it's understanding that there are humans involved and we are dealing with human problems. So there were not necessarily be black and white solves and so on and so forth. And all these big enterprise companies out there, the majority of them were created in our parents or our parents' parents' generations, exactly. not, you know, and, our, and so what you're seeing is actually like the operating model is a relic of the past, not yes. a, not a projection into the future. And so all of our younger entrepreneurs that are creating the right models are going to become the status quo because as you know, most of the companies on the S&P 500 weren't around hundred years ago, let alone 50 years ago. Right. right. And so when you look at some of this one, the bigger ones, even ones, you oh, they're never going to go away. Right. Look at Blackberry, look at, you know, Nokia, look at something. It's like, you know, they, things change in the world. And so it's our responsibility as entrepreneurs to be the crazy ones, to be the rebels, yeah. to see the world differently. Be the innovators. Right? Yeah. Be to the be innovators. the innovators. Right. And see, and see everything from a different, from a different perspective and to be constantly challenging. Right. That's- every, every norm, just because it says it's, it's how it's always been done. Doesn't mean it needs to be. Continued. Yeah. In fact, in fact, when it says it's how it's always been done, that's where you're like, hmm, there's an opportunity. Yeah. yeah there's an opportunity. Exactly. I'm like, Oh, yikes. Yikes. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, do you have any kind of final thoughts? You've given so many incredible points here that I'm, I'm, I'm on board with your friend all the way, <laughs> but any kind of final thoughts to wrap it up here? And I, th- I feel like you and I could chat forever and ever. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I think that for your listeners on this, my biggest final thought is just my experience share is that um, no matter where you are in your journey, um, 
I would highly recommend um, taking a quick step back to create that white space and create that list of joy. And the way that I recommend doing that is by finding some white space in a space that makes you happy. It could be in your house or in nature or, you know, on a trip or wherever. Um, and write down things that make you smile from the inside out. And go back to your, you know, think back to your childhood memory, think back to, you, you know, a happy memory when you were a kid. And, and typically that's the feeling and emotion you're looking for. It doesn't need to be a long list, um, but just the things that make you smile and look at this thing and say, how can I do one thing from this um, every single day? And for me, Italy is my passion and, and happy place. And, uh, and so, um, you know, for me, it's like, uh, if Italy is my happier passion place, I, there's so many different offshoots of that. It's Italian cooking, speaking Italian, you know, and all these different things. It could just be watching an Italian document. There's so many little things that you can do that are a small daytime investment or nighttime investment in, into your list of joy, because the compounding effects of that over time, um, uh, that return on joy is just exponential happiness. And it is a Moore's law curve, right? At first yeah. slow and then quick. Um, and so uh, the number one thing I recommend is, is, is people just taking that step back from their day-to-day -day lives, connecting with that joy, because what it does is it removes you from high beta, brings you into alpha, and then you start to get, oh, wow, this is, wow, I'm not doing it. Okay, how can I, how can I go in that direction? And then over time, add to that list. Yeah. And as little things yeah. pop up, add to it, build on it. And then all of a sudden, what you focus on expands, your list of joy becomes this beautiful thing where, um, you're, like you said, fresh clean, crisp sheets is a joyful thing to lie, you know, to, to lie in bed. It could be just that fresh feeling of that pillow could be cuddling with your kids or your dogs or your spouse, or your partner in the morning, yeah. whatever it may be. Yeah. So invest in joy. That's yeah. I love it. I absolutely love it. Can you please tell people where they can find more of you friend? Yeah. So, uh, uh Brent Freeman, uh, dot me is my website. Um, and, uh, my company is stealth venture labs. Uh, we are an e-commerce marketing uh, brand and incubator and, and nonprofit uh, that teaches it to, to low-income kids in the U.S., stealthventurelabs.com, um, or on Instagram, Brent double underscore Freeman. Uh, and those are kind of the best places. And I'm, I'm in the process of starting to write a book and put all this stuff together kind of Very slowly cool. over the next couple of years. Um, and so not all this content is, is published uh, yet, but I'm happy to, happy to share and connect with anyone who reaches out. Wonderful. And if I'm still doing this podcast and that book comes out, you're coming back because yeah. <laughs> we have more to talk about, friend. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for being here today. This was an absolute pleasure. Michelle, it was wonderful being here. So fun fact, a little behind the scenes action here is that when I recorded with Brent, I was having the worst day. And this is something that, you know, it really just sticks in my brain. It was a hell of a week. It was one of those like just totally exhausted, kind of trudging through things kind of weeks. And by the time I came off of our conversation, I was a different, I was like a different person. <laughs> you know, he just had so many great points to drive home around allowing adversity to just kind of pass you by and knowing that it's going to end and infusing joy and just so many valuable points that by the time I got off that phone conversation or that Zoom rather, the interview, I was completely renewed. And that's what I really enjoyed about this conversation is that, you know, it's something that you can go to when you're feeling a little, you know, less than, or you've hit a failure or something like that. So I hope that it resonated with you too. And on next week's episode, I am really excited to welcome my friend Chanel Dokun to the show. She is just released a brand new book. It is fantastic. It's called Life Starts Now. And she's going to tell us all about that. And the premise of it is that, you know, 
It's to stop striving and start thriving. So many of us spend our days trying to strive for that next best, best thing, you know, constantly trying to stay ahead of the game instead of, you know, taking a step back, stepping into your authentic self and really beginning to thrive. And she's going to tell us her story as well as give us some pointers on just how to do just that. And if you love this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe, download, follow, rate, and review. And you know, tell a friend because who couldn't use a little more resilience in their life, right? See you later.